Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Paul Muldoon has been hailed by the Times Literary Supplement as the most significant English-language poet born since World War II. His 30-plus verse collections include Quoof, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Moy Sand and Gravel, Madoc a Mystery, Horse Latitudes, and 2019's Frolic and Detour. He has also edited poetry anthologies, written opera libretti, and published a collection of his Oxford lectures titled The End of the Poem. For 10 years, beginning in 2007, he was the poetry editor of The New Yorker. Muldoon also has an abiding passion for rock music, collaborating with the late Warren Zevon and performing with his own band, Rogue Oliphant, whose latest album is Sadie and the Sadists. Since 1987, Muldoon has been a professor at Princeton University, where he teaches poetry and songwriting. His next collection of verse, Howdy Skelp, will be published in November 2021. Well, it's great to have you, Paul, on the Story Talks Back. I really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. Thank you. Um, So I want to sort of begin by thinking about stories in your past and uh, how much stories and storytelling might have been, you know, playing a role in your early years and your development. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I'm from Northern Ireland. Uh, and um, when I was a kid in the 1950s, uh, before we had television, and we were, I think, the second house in the vicinity to have a television, there was a long tradition of uh, what, what we call in Ireland, kelling. And uh, the Irish word kelling means to get together. Kelling mm. is getting together often in a particular house uh, that was known indeed as a kelly house. It's a house that was particularly open to the possibility of visitors uh-huh. coming round of an evening. And they would, they would not necessarily uh, come with a formal invitation they would more often than not just drop round um, of an evening to the Cayley house. And they amused themselves there <laughs> by singing songs, of course, um, many of which actually they'd made up themselves. Mm. Where I was brought up, you know, the local farmers, uh, people growing apples, uh, growing potatoes, <laughs> uh, wheat, Whatever, whatever they might be doing, um, as it were, for a living uh, or a living of sorts, they, they also got involved in amateur dramatics and they wrote songs and sang songs. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they told stories. And uh, <clears throat> the stories they told were, um, you know, of wild, wild and uh, woolly uh, events in the neighborhood, uh, <laughs> you know, sightings of ghosts, 
uh, strange doings, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the matter, as it were, by which I mean the material of uh, country uh, storytelling. And did you sort of grow up thinking of yourself as a storyteller? I don't think I did, no. Um, in fact, I'm sure I didn't. Um, I thought of uh, stories been told by, <laughs> by people who had stories to tell and, and, and they tended to be, to be, to be grown-ups, as it were. But uh, just as you mentioned it, I'm reminded of a very particular phenomenon. Uh, I was brought up as a Catholic mm. and um, the... Um, on a Sunday morning, uh, we had mass. And I, as it happens, was an altar boy. I served mass with a few of my uh, neighbor, neighbors uh, for the parish priest when he came in to say mass. And we would uh, be waiting in the sacristy, ready to go on, as it were, in the wings of the theater, which, of course, is what it was. You know, it was, it was, it was various things, but it was theater among other things. <clears throat> and as we were waiting to go on for the big show, um, uh, there was one particular fellow, uh, Pat Campbell, uh, who, uh, who was adept at uh, telling pictures. Now, what does that mean? What that means in this case is that he would have gone to the local picture house, i.e. movie theater, Mm -hmm. as in the last picture show. Um, <clears throat> and on the day before, Saturday afternoon, he might have seen a Western. It was an era when, uh, you know, every week saw at least two Westerns. Thank heavens one can still watch them. And I do. Um, but Pat Campbell uh, would tell you, tell us the story, the plot of the Western, you know. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know, the hired hand, you know, was uh, plotting against uh, the owner of the, of, of the ranch or whatever it was. So the story of the film was told. <clears throat> but I don't think I ever thought of myself as a storyteller. Um, and it was only gradually, I suppose, as I became interested in trying to write poems, that the idea of narrative, um, uh, you know, came into play and I became more aware of it. I don't know if I ever really sat uh, down and thought, here I am involved in narrative or storytelling, mm. uh, not in any conscious way. But uh, when, when I'm forced to think about it as now, um, you know, it's narrative is a feature of so many art forms, it's a feature of music, and I don't mean necessarily song, I mean music, um, straight up music, as it were. Um, it's uh, a feature of much visual art, painting, sure. as a narrative component, some mm -hmm. more than others. But if you've, in any form of uh, the verbal arts, the written arts, I suppose basically when you've got one word following another, you're immediately involved in narrative. I mean, mm -hmm. there are those I, re I remember over the years, there have been poetic movements, for example, that have issued uh, narrative. They've, they've said, we have absolutely no interest 
in narrative. That's not what we're into. We don't do that. We do something else. The problem is that, you know, we, one might decide as a poet uh, not to do something, which I think actually is a fatal error for any artist. It's a mistake to say, I'm not going to do that. And even if one says, I'm not going to be involved in narrative, narrative will have its eye and its ear uh, on you, right? Narrative, narrative will visit you whether you want it to or not. So, um, you know, the poem, uh, it, which is the art form that I'm most interested in, appeals to various traditions. It's, it's a visual art form as much as anything else, but it's certainly a storytelling art form. And um, there is indeed, um, there is a, a phenomenon known as the sung short story, which refers to some poems. Of course, they're in the traditional sense, there were narrative poems, uh, many of them epic, right? Um, you know, in terms of uh, genres of poetry, there is such a thing as narrative poetry. Um, but as I say, most most poems, even the most, even the briefest and the most imagistic, uh, you know, a little poem like, um, oh, W. Carlos Williams' um, The Red Wheelbarrow has a story attached to it. Mm -hmm. In a station of the Metro, the great imagistic poem by Ezra Pound about the Paris underground and the flowers, the petals on the wet black bough. There's a story there, right? So <clears throat> it's very hard to avoid storytelling. And indeed, I'm not sure why anyone would. Well, I guess I was wondering whether, you know, thinking of your poems as a story, if you were doing that, as you were working on them and whether that might be expanding or limiting in your, in your mind, if you were to think of them that way. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, expanding. Uh, I don't think of it's, you know, it's, it's just intrinsic, I'd say to the business of, of writing poems at all. As I say, it's very hard not to tell a story, right? Um, and, um, you know, one of the things about telling stories is that, um, and this is true of the poem also, uh, not necessarily evidently so, um, you know, one of the things that poems are by and large trying to do is to clarify something um, and to dramatize something, you know, and both of those ideas are, are you know, connected to narrative notions. Um, and um, I mean, and and uh, that goes back to the the earliest forms of poetry in many cultures. Funnily enough, just last night I was looking idly at uh, a an anthology uh, of um, ballads from the English tradition, and you know the ballad is. Uh, devised so many um, fabulous um, methods of telling stories. One of them was to tell stories by um, direct speech, you know, conversations uh, between characters, between um, Lord Randall and his mother, for example. What got you for dinner, 
Lord Randall, my son. I got eels boiled in wine or something. It varies, I think, a little bit from version to version. So there's the direct conversation. And of course, it transpires. Um, his mother realizes and Lord Randall realizes in that great ballad that he has been poisoned uh, by, his, by his beloved, quote unquote, who has fed him a dish of eels boiled boiled eels with a touch of uh, poison in them. So, um, you know, the, um, I love the ballad tradition um, um, and I love the, um, the tradition of the, the poem in which uh, Robert Frost, one of my favorite poets, excels, which is, is, is the poem uh, that uh, involves uh, a conversation uh, between a couple of characters and many of his great uh, uh, longer poems uh, are built up, uh, built upon uh, conversations. Just your mentioning the ballads reminds me of your love of rock music and your, uh, the fact that, you know, you're in a rock band and you, you know, you have uh, worked with Warren Zevon and, um, I was just wondering, what about rock music um, and the words of it, the uh, the atmosphere of it? Can you sort of define how that appeals to you creatively, or, or what that does for you? Well, I mean, again, um, you know, funnily enough, I I try for my sins to 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 teach, quote unquote, songwriting. <laughs> you know, in the tradition of teaching things that one. You know, I, you know, I know a little bit about it. That's all I would ever say about any of these activities. I don't know more than a little bit about poetry. You know, the longer one does it, you know, I've been doing it for 50 years and more and more I realize I know nothing at all about it, really. Um, but, you know, the songwriting, of course, is a very, very, very visual medium. And um, Eleanor Rigby, Father Mackenzie, I went down to the river with Bruce Springsteen. You know, these are, we're looking at this, we're, we have a particular image, we're looking at that. And it's, um, it's, it's very often a, um, essentially, I mean, for want of a better term, it's a cinematic business. And uh, some of the great songwriters, you know, really understand that and, and use that to great advantage. So, um, um, you know, I, um, I um, attempt to do that myself a little bit, you know. What was it like for you to collaborate with, uh, with Warren Zevon uh, on that one album of his? You know, I'd been a fan of Warren Zevon for years, really since probably 79, 1979, 80, uh, right about the time um, Excitable Boy came out. And, you know, you're talking about images. Um, <laughs> well, he came down to dinner in his Sunday best and he rubbed the pot roast all over his chest. He's just an excitable boy. Um, 
he took in the 3 a.m. show at the Clark and he bit the usherette's leg in the dark. It's just an excitable boy and so on and so forth. After 10 long years, they let him out of the home. And he built a cage from her bone, something along those lines. You know, and uh, very, I mean, absolutely in the ballad tradition, in fact, among, among other traditions that it appeals to, um, he dug up her grave and made a, a cave, a cage of her bones is the line. And uh, so I'd been a fan of Warren's Yvonne and as such, of course, I'd written him a fan letter. I'm a big believer in the fan letter. <laughs> I've written fan letters to people, all kinds of people. Uh, starting with Robin Hood, um, as played by Richard Green. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a character about him, there's a whole slew of ballads. But Richard Green in the television series, Robin Hood, I wrote to him asking him if he had any spare bows and arrows that he could possibly <laughs> lend me. Um, in any case, I wrote to Warren and uh, not really expecting a response, just saying, you know that I was that I loved what he did, and you know Warren's even as you know, uh, I mean he was a genius as far as I'm concerned. But you know he he's not really recognised to the extent that he should be, even among people who know something about rock and roll. And partly because you know in a strange way he was his own worst enemy, and uh, you know he had various problems that. Um, inhibited uh, his capacity really to, to, have, to have a decent career. But in any case, uh, amazingly, I heard back from Warren. He called me up and uh, he told me that we were, he, was, um, he was doing a guest spot on the Saturday Night Live, uh, no, it was the David Letterman show, uh, where he stood in uh, um, every so often um, as band leader um, when Paul Thingmajigger, you know, went on, uh, went on leave. And uh, so he was coming to New York anyway, and we arranged to meet and we had a chat and we walked around. And at one point he said to me, how would you like to write a song? And, you know, which of course was like hearing from God, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, in a strange way, you know, that meant almost more to me than, you know, if the various people I met over the years, the various famous poets uh, I met over the years or almost met, you know, if one of them had said to me, how would you like to write a poem? I don't know if I'd have been quite as enthused <laughs> as I was by the, the prospect of trying to write something with more. So anyway, um, he had a couple of ideas for songs. Um, one of them, uh, he had the title for a song, uh, which was My Rides Here. And that was a phrase that had come to him one night at a show somewhere where he, um, he'd heard, a, I believe he'd heard a, um, an ambulance, you know, outside the show. Uh, it was a very small venue, of course, alas. And um, he said, uh, is an impromptu remark. 
he said, my ride's here. So that was as much as he had. He had the title. So um, <clears throat> as it happens, I um, wrote a first verse for it and sent it to him. We sent, sent it by email. It was still the days when, you know, I think he, he mailed me a CD with a version of the first verse or verse and then the, the rest of the song. And then we started uh, f finishing it, or it took a while to 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 write it actually, and um, and that's one of the things, of course, that one I probably didn't quite understand um, is that uh, songwriting songwriting is um, a very difficult art form, uh, mm. which is not just that poetry isn't, but you sort of think, well, songwriting must be easier than that. And indeed, we know many stories of uh, <clears throat> songs that have come easily to people, have come to them in dreams, have come to them in, in, in uh, certainly in broken sleep. You know, Keith Richards and his great riff, or um, um, uh, Paul McCartney uh, with, with some version of Yesterday uh, coming to him in a dream. But more often than not, I think, uh, alas, a lot of work goes into it and all the work as usual goes into making it sound uh, as if no work is at much at all has gone into it. Mm. So war, for me, writing a, trying to write a song, writing a song with Warren Zevon was like being apprenticed to you know, it's probably like, you know, being an apprentice to a great painter or something, if one were a visual artist. I think of it as an apprenticeship, you know, because he was a guy who really, insofar as anybody knows what they're doing, um, he really knew what he was doing. It's funny because, uh, you know, I think a lot of people might assume that, you know, what you're doing with words in your poetry is a lot more sophisticated than rock lyrics. But you obviously don't see it that way. I don't at all. Um, I don't. And, and there's a very, and there's a, you know, and it's, that sounds counterintuitive. It sounds weird. I mean, for various reasons. I mean, na, 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 na. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's a very memorable song. And it, what does it mean? It's a lyric that means nothing. What does it mean? So in other words, there are songs that are extremely effective and one has no idea what they mean, if they mean anything at all, and they, they can be quite effective. But for those that, um, um, of course, there's a tradition of the nonsense poem too, but for those that stray into making sense, um, <clears throat> and particularly in this era where most poets are not all that exercised by the traditional uh, forms of poetry are not really interested for the most part in meter or rhyme um, these days in the way that most poets were say, what, a hundred years ago, certainly 200 years ago. Um, and most people can actually have a career probably as a poet insofar as such a thing is imaginable without knowing anything at all, without knowing what an anapest is or, or a dactyl, um, you know, it's, it's perfectly feasible. 
I, I guess. Um, but when you get into the songwriting business, um, it's actually much stricter. Uh, when you've established a template for a verse and a particular rhythm for, let's say, four lines, you know, uh, <clears throat> a, a rhythm that's associated with a, with a tune, with a melody, whatever. Um, it first of all, it uh, it almost certainly rhymes. Mm -hmm. There are very very few songs that don't rhyme. There's some that don't, but most do. Um, so to be able to to be able to pull off rhyming, and to be able to replicate the structure of uh, a verse. Um, you know, verse one more or less has to be replicated in verse two, and uh, that more or less in verse three. There may be some little variation in the what comes between two and three, often, often in songs with an A A B A structure, as many songs do. They have a they have a little respite there. They have the middle eight or the bridge. Something else is happening often in a slightly a different key. But they're very, basically very, very simple on one hand, and yet requiring, I'd say, um, <laughs> a lot more expertise than one would imagine. You know, given the fact that actually many song lyrics are actually pretty, pretty uh, negligible or. Um, uh, you know, in, in some sense, the pressure per square inch, which is the term I use uh, to describe some of the differences between a song lyric and a poem, mm. the pressure per square inch is slightly lower than it might be in a poem. It's not to say that it's worse or better, only different. Mm. Um, the, the big difference, of course, is that in a poem, um, the poem... This is this is not something I I came up with. This is this is this is an idea that seems very um, val valid and valuable to me. The poem brings it its own music. It almost brings its own score. It tells you how to read it, how mm. to perform it. Right? It instructs you. Whereas uh, paradoxically, a lyric uh, is missing something. There's some component that it, that's not there that that's required um, to make it, the phrase I use is to make it what it most might be, mm. right? So it's missing something. And in a strange way, another of the problems, the difficulties with writing song lyrics is that you almost have to figure in something being missing. Right, which is not something that comes easily to us mm. as writers. You mean right? leaving space for it in a way? Leaving space for it in a way, yeah. A, you know, a line, I mean, it's kind of chicken and eggish, but you know, the music is gonna do something that really, that the lyric by itself can't quite do. Otherwise, I don't know if there's a lot of point in doing it at all, you know? Right. It's funny because I also feel like in your own writing, there's a certain, there's, to me, there's a clear rebelliousness 
against expectations within certain poems. You know, you, I feel you're saying, I'm not going to go in the direction you expect me to, or I'm not going to follow, you know, the precise structure, or uh, I'm going to defy your expectations, um, which to me feels very rock and roll in a way. Do you, well, sense, do you sense that's true? That's a way of putting it. Um, yeah, I mean, what, that certainly is a way of putting it. I mean, I'd say I don't want to start start into big generalizations or large statements about this and that, but I'd say you know there's a there's a rebellious aspect to most interesting art, um, you know. Um, there's an, let's begin, let's go back a better bit. There's certainly an unexpected aspect to, I think, to, to really any interesting art. Mm-hmm. Um, you think, wow, huh, I would never have thought of that. I would never have thought of that. That's, that's how I want to come out of a poem as the writer of a poem. I want to come out of it thinking, wow, yeah, I would, that would never have occurred to me in a million years. Um, I would never have thought I'd end up there, you know? Um, <clears throat> and as far as I'm concerned is, um, you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm doing as a writer, again, I don't think about it, but if I think about it, what I'm doing is really trying not to get in the way of allowing it <laughs> to do something quite interesting. Uh-huh. I work basically on the theory that if, if I think, I try to leave myself out of it as much as possible, including even what I think is interesting or not. Um, I mean, that must come into play in some way uh, because, um, you know, at one's testing whether or not something is provocative, say, against one's own, you know, experience of what provocation might look like. But, uh, but you're right. I mean, um, interesting art is provocative, I think. It's, um, and rock and roll, um, though it may not always achieve that, has, has got that ambition. That's, that's one of its ambitions, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, I mean, there are those who say rock and roll doesn't exist anymore. I'm not, I don't quite believe that, but um, so that, that's the spirit, I believe, you know, and it's certainly the spirit. I think it's the spirit of any interesting artist at all. I mean, there are various ways of describing it. Avant-gardism. I mean, I think any interesting poem is avant-garde in some way. You know, it's it's like nothing, nothing you've quite seen before. It may be a little bit like something you've seen before, but I think ideally, let's put it like that. There's a there's an element that you've not seen before. Otherwise, very simply, why bother? Why bother? You know, we go to the movies. I mean, just to be a poet in the society is an act of rebellion in a way, right? Um, <laughs> well, insofar as anyone might be paying attention, um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say it's, uh, I don't, wouldn't think of it as a way of garnering a lot of attention. 
um, you know, um, uh, alas, um, um, you know, <laughs> um, alas, um, poetry is not read to the extent that it might be in our culture um, for various reasons. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, um, in the way that it was read in the culture I was describing at the very outset of our conversation. Right. I mean, when I was at my, the local, the neighbors where I was brought up, they would have been uh, able to recite a bit of Shakespeare. Uh, I mean, they're just quote unquote ordinary people, whatever that is, um, you know, uh, but they'd been to school for at least for a while. And when they were in school, you know, they would have read um, uh, a certain amount of poetry in, in, in the school. It was part of the curriculum in a way that it's not quite these days. And I think this is true in the US too. Um, but even um, popular poets like um, Robert Service, uh, who's a very popular poet in this country, but actually was an extremely popular poet um, in, um, in Ireland also. And, uh, you know, Dan McGrew, the cremation of Sam McGee. I mean, these were, these were party pieces. These were poems that virtually anybody could get up and recite. And recitation. Um, Narratives. Sorry? Narratives. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Recitation. Um, recitation was, <laughs> was an art form that, that meant many people, many people, um, were engaged in, you know? And how much, as you're writing, does recitation play into your revision or your initial creation in terms of the sound of it? Um, <clears throat> by and large, uh, I'd say quite a bit. You know, I don't necessarily sound out the poems. Um, I don't necessarily physically sound them out. But um, I suppose I test them on, on a, an ear of some kind, an inner ear. I tend to operate by instinct and intuition. I'm not, I don't, I'm not in general, someone who works with a notion of meter, for example. I don't generally do that at all. It's all kind of hunch by hunch. Um, and... Uh, I mean, sometimes I realize when I stand up to read a poem for the first time, I wish that I'd actually had sounded it out <laughs> before then and think, oh my God, that doesn't sound so good. Um, but uh, <clears throat> there's a mysterious aspect to that. You know, that's, people used to, I don't know if they still do talk to the same extent about poets having ears, you know, you'd say, well, Yeats had a fabulous ear, you know, and, and that has to do with some intuitive capacity it's, uh, to present a, a line, uh, not in an inherited form, not in a received metric uh, necessarily, though sometimes they did, um, they, were, they did fall into those uh, patterns. Uh, and you think, wow, huh? 
having a great ear and it's it's got to do with the natural ability and what used to be called a talent i mean these are concepts that are not much spoken of these days uh, because we tend to think and, and there's something to it that anybody can do anything uh, and there's something to that but you know the other side of it is you know, I would love to be a great guitar player. But the fact of the matter is, you know, I can barely manage three chords and I'll never be any good at it. It's just a fact. I'm just no good at it. Um, and I could, you know, work at it forever and I'd still be no good at it. And that kind of, that's because I don't have a talent for it. And other people have talents for it, you know? Do you find that... Uh... You know, your, your, your students at Princeton, do they have very different assumptions about creativity and writing uh, than you do coming into your courses? Um, I don't know. I mean, it varies a little bit. I mean, one of the really interesting things, just to go back to what I was saying a, a moment ago, you know, I do believe that one may, it's not that one may not be able to teach guitar playing or teach poetry writing or verse writing or teach biology or Russian, right? Um, but <laughs> there has to be, there has to be something on the other side, some re receptivity to begin with and, and some, it go back to that word talent. Now, one of the really interesting, and I believe that, you know, I, I myself, and I think many other teachers could get a, at least one poem out of anybody. You know, there are ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, whether or not, um, of course, whether or not one will um, um, make a, a, um, a great guitarist or, or a great poet out of anyone, is, including oneself, Hmm. is a whole other matter. But one of the things I really enjoy about Princeton, and I think this is true of other universities also, is that um, <clears throat> many of the students who um, are in my poetry classes are, are not um, what we would think of as uh, conventional, as having taken a conventional route to poetry. Many of them, for example, are not English majors or even comparative literature majors. Many of them are, you know, engineers or, um, or, or um, you know, uh, scientists of various hues. And, uh, and that's actually psychologists. Um, uh, they come from a vast range of um, majors, as it were. And yet each of them uh, brings something. Um, and I think essentially what it is, is a kind of openness. Mm. If, you, if you bring an openness to the possibility that you might write a poem, if you bring a sense of humility to the enterprise, then I think there's actually a chance you will. And often these non-traditional, if we may call them that, students uh, have, have a freshness about them. Um, because uh, 
they, they sort of accept that they don't quite know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that is a good thing mm-hmm. on, on balance in this activity. So thinking about, you know, sort of the story of your own work, you know, and your career as a writer, um, how your, your writing has developed to such a degree over the years, do you mm-hmm. have any sense of it as a narrative in itself? And do you have any idea about where it's, where it's heading? Uh, the answer to both those questions is no. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> funnily enough, um, I had occasion this morning to, someone asked me for a poem on a particular topic, doing an anthology. And um, I was looking at a poem that I wrote probably in about, probably 50 years ago, probably in 1970. Um, and you know, I was looking at it and I was thinking, you know, it's actually all, it's not, it's okay. It's not bad at all. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, sometimes I think I might be better at some things than, than, than I was, but then there's plenty of evidence to suggest that I have not improved at all. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence to suggest as is the case with many, most poets, that, that I've disimproved. So the idea that one gets better is not necessarily, hmm. uh, it does not necessarily obtain in this particular business, and that's to say poetry writing. In fact, I've talked about this a few times, unfortunately, you know, most poets disimprove as they continue. They often start out actually you know, 18, 19, 20, up to 30, interesting things can happen. Yeah. After, you know, the more, the, the longer one does it, the more difficult it gets, I'd say. Mm. Um, for various reasons. For various reasons, including that one doesn't want to be repeating oneself, even though one's doomed to repeat oneself. Mm. You know, um, there's just, um, you know, you learn to write each poem, you write that poem, the next one, what stood you in good stead to write the first one is not necessarily even uh, applicable to number two, right? It needs its own skill set from the poet to allow it into the world. And you don't really know what that skill set, let's call it a skill set, is um, until you're working on it. You don't know what you have to be able to do, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I often use the analogy of a piece of furniture. If, you, if, you're, if you've made a table once, uh, there's a good chance that, that you'll make at least as good a table next time. And you know what you need for it. You need a hammer, a saw, what an, a, an adz or whatever the word is, you know. <laughs> uh, um, and, you know, but with the poem, you don't even know that it's a table you're making. Mm. You only discover what it is you're making as you're making it. And it might turn out uh, to be 
to require a whole other set of tools. Mm. It might not need tools at all. It might not be even a, it might be something else. Well, I loved uh, Frolic and Detour and, uh, you know, I feel like as I'm reading it that you're almost uh, surprising yourself, you know, from line to line. I love that sense of it, you know. Well, I, I'm very glad. Thank you. So I, I very much appreciate your saying that. That that means a lot to me um, because, um, you know, that, that's the hope. That's the hope. Uh, you you hope the one hopes that one's going to be <laughs> um, fresh. You know, the poem is going to be fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one I don't. We don't want to be staying on the on the train one stop past the destination as it were you know but then you never know when you're done i mean there there are poets instances of poets who've you know started off strong and then they've had a kind of weakish period and then they come back roaring you know come back with uh, with extraordinary work at, at the at the ends of their lives you know so um, it's hard to know even if one should uh, pack it all in you know one's there's a desperate hope that you know maybe it'll get better <laughs> i thought uh, you know salonica in the yale review uh that was such a such a fascinating poem you know the way thank that you so much that for kept retell, retelling it it was it was like a story that you were you kept trying to retell and and somehow bring different perspectives i'm not sure what you it was fascinating and, and beautiful, but. Thank you so much for saying that. That's a newish poem. It'll be in my next book, which is coming out in in 2021, if we all see it. <laughs> um, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, um, yeah, that's that uses a form, funnily enough, that I'd never used before, the trial A. Um, uh, you know, with this particular form, I've kind of a number of them sort of, packed in together. And it's a fascinating uh, narrative tool. Um, but uh, anyway, and that's a poem. Um, yeah, it's a, that's a pretty scary poem. And it's based on something pretty scary that happened to me just like, witnessing a road accident, you know, in so outside Thessalonica. Mm. It's, I mean, talk about cinematic, that's certainly has cinematic qualities to it, you know. Well, you've made my day. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you so much for your time, Paul. I really appreciate it and uh, appreciate you made the space for this uh, discussion. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I'm delighted to be part of your your, uh, uh, podcast. Thank you. Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Carlos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.